hi and welcome to finally, at long, long last, the 50th episode, spectacular, of the Macho Movie Man podcast, featuring a whopping one guest. Woo! <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it to it. Grandma, that is. Uh, welcome, folks. Today, we are covering Back to the Future. Finally. Oh, can't wait. Where we're going, we don't need roads. We just need a microphone. Exactly. <laughs> which we finally have attached to the guest. So um, you can finally hear what they're saying and not just what I'm saying. <laughs> you can hear me nice and crisp, I'll just have ASMR and it'll be all good, you know. <laughs> um, but welcome to the show, everyone. Dean, the notorious DMC. I like it. Hello, Jake. How are you today? I am good. How does it feel to be back on the show? feels great. It feels like I've been off it for too long, you know? Well, in fairness, this is the first time we're recording in about a month, so we've all That's been off fair. the show a while. Yeah, good to get back into it, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Uh, we've just taken a bit of a break so that we can... Obviously, uh, there was a snafu with the audio editing on our Star Wars Episode 1 episode. Yes. And we were working to see what the next step in the podcast will be, what we want to do in the future, what angle we want to take it in next, how we wish to evolve. So we've been off air for a little while. Um, we may take another bit of a hiatus depending on how things go after this episode, maybe not, but we will get into that uh, by the at the end of the show yeah. about what the future may hold. But speaking of future, <laughs> let's get back to it. That was a good segue. I like it. That's the best segue this show is ever going <laughs> to have. It can only go downhill from here. In a DeLorean. <laughs> um, so back to the future. What is there to say about this movie that hasn't already been said? Oh, God, there, there's not much, but we can repeat a lot of it, you know, yes. in, a, in a fun way. I... <laughs> in, in a, yes. So, obviously, it's directed by Robert Zemeckis, yeah. who, uh, who would later go on to make Forrest Gump, Polar Express, and the remake of The Witches, all truly classics. <laughs> Don't you say a bad thing about the Polar Express. I and swear to God. <laughs> and the, the, the king of the uncanny valley, Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> I mean, he was bathing the way in CGI. That's all I'm saying. And, and in dead eyes. Exactly. <laughs> you don't need emotion. Come on. <laughs> you just need realistic looking faces. Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of Tom Hanks. Who, who doesn't love Tom Hanks, though? Um, I don't know. Maybe Chet Hanks. Is that his brother? It's his son. It's his son. Okay, never mind. <laughs> don't, don't look him up. You'll be disappointed. Oh. <laughs> well, now I'm curious. <laughs> um, the cast, we have Michael J. Fox. Yeah. Obviously. Iconic. Uh, Christopher Lloyd. Even more iconic. Leah Thompson. Pre-Hell at the Duck. Wait. Oh, my God. She was in Hell at the Duck. Yes. Oh, God. Um, Crispin Glover. He kind of looks like a villain, but you know. The original Jared Leto, insofar as he was a complete weirdo. 
Yeah. I was just showing me the photo of Crispin Glover. The only member of this cast to be banned from the David Letterman show. Really? He went on to do an interview, I think it was like in 86, or it was after this movie, but like, he was wild, he was acting up, he came this close, he almost kicked Letterman in the head on his own show. What the fuck? It's hard to explain. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine what led but, to that. But look, but look it up online because it's fascinating. I'll have to after this. Um, Claudio, uh, Tom Wilson. Yeah. Kind of looking like a discount Brendan Fraser right now, you know, but like. Brendan Fraser, if he has like that, you know, old man tycoon in a movie hair. Yeah. White on standing on end. Yeah. <laughs> the short back and sides Pegasus look. Oh God. Um, I mean, you're right. <laughs> Claudia Wells is Jennifer. Uh, in what would be her only appearance in this trilogy. Yeah, it's kind of sad in a way, but I mean... He's Tolkien as Strickland. No relation. <laughs> Mark McClure is Dave McFly. Wendy Jo Sperber as Linda McFly. A very young Billy Zane. Yes, yeah. Match. Uh, there's a reason he was cast in uh, that role that I'll get into later. And I want to give him a shout out because, you know, he's awesome. And also, I want to just say his name out loud. <laughs> Donald Fully Love. Fully Love. L F U L L I L O V E. Oh my God, you're right. Who plays Go. Mayor Goldie Wilson? The third. Yeah, I I was watching a documentary while doing the research about this, and he openly just says, um, if I had a nickel for every time someone came up to me and just said, Mayor, <laughs> I would have all the nickels. But imagine that, though. Like, that that's kind of amazing. People still coming up to be like, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah, no, he, for, he can... I, I don't know what else he did after this, but in like, this is one of those roles where it's like, you wouldn't have a lot to do, but you can <sighs> ride this for the rest of your life. I, I, I just looked up there at every, the first four things is just Back to the Future. Back to the Future related, yes. Yeah. He was on, he, he said that as part of the same, docu as part of the documentary I watched. Hold on a second. He, he was what? in Up? I think he may have voiced one of the, um... Okay, where... The, the folks who were looking up Donald Fully Love's, um, filmography, and he does a lot of voice work. I think in Up, he was one of the, uh, nurses who come to take, uh, Mr. Fredrickson away from his house after he gets caught on those assault charges. So he's done, like, small roles in a lot of Disney and Pixar, then? Yes. yes okay. So. And so, yeah, so we're going to talk about the pre-production. Yeah. Uh, we're going to just discuss the movie a bit. And then we're just going to talk a little bit about the legacy. Because, like I said, there's not a huge amount to kind of say about this. But it, it'd be interesting to look at, like, the legacy that this film has had. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into some pre-production on this one. All right. So, basically... The two people at the heart of this are Bob Gale and Robert Smekis. 
Obviously, Zemeckis has gone on to make other things, but this is this is really Bob Gale's biggest thing in his career. Yeah, it is by far his most remembered thing. Yeah, and kind of like his baby, I suppose. And that's not a bad thing at all because, like, he wrote this and Zemeckis directed it, so this is his story. They met at USC in the seventies. And while they were there, they met with a recent graduate. Uh, while they were still studying, they met with a guest who had been a recent graduate a few years prior, who was in giving a talk about his newest movie, which was called The Sugarland Express. Okay. That speaker was a young Steven Spielberg. Yes, okay. Sugarland Express being the last movie he made before Jaws. Uh, yes, okay. So, this was the last moment before people found out who the fuck Spielberg was. And from there, the rest is kind of history. Yes, so this is basically you getting, you meeting the sugar daddy before he finds, he gets the money. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that is a literal dream, basically. Yeah. And so they strike up a friendship because they they all have the sim they all have similar likes and similar interests and whatnot. And so they form a friendship, and then obviously Spielberg then goes on to make Jaws, followed very soon by Close Encounters, and he's the biggest name in Hollywood for the next ten to fifteen years. Yeah. He could do no wrong at this stage. 1941. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll leave that out. But, like, yeah. you know, he had a good run. <laughs> they wanted... Gale and Zemeckis had both wanted to do a time travel adventure movie for a very long time. Like, it's what they... It's something they wanted to do even when they met Spielberg. But they just couldn't crack the idea for a story. Until Gale... Went back to his parents' house. I believe he lived in Illinois or somewhere. Mm. But um, he went back to visit his parents and he was up in the attic one day and he found a box with a bunch of his parents' old high school things in it and he found their yearbook. And he was looking through their parents' yearbook and they saw that his dad was class president and quite popular yeah and obviously gail probably having having have been a film nerd probably did not have the same experience and he kind of just thought god was my dad an asshole in cal in <laughs> high school because i imagine in his time he probably would have gotten shit from you know class presidents popular kids and whatnot yeah it was like would I have actually gotten along? Would would I have even liked my own dad back in the day? It is quite a quite a thing that you would wonder, like. Yeah, would you and your parents have been friends in high school or or secondary school? Yeah, because you see yourself and you see them now, and you think, oh yeah, it's it's my dad, but like, they're not the people they were. Like we all grow, we aren't who we were yeah. when we were in secondary I school. What, I wonder what the Irish version of that. Would be to an extent like famously like 
to, like, would he be like, oh, he's the captain of the football, t the soccer team? But even then, we don't, you know, the captains of those teams don't matter in sec secondary school. Yeah, no, it's not as big of a thing. Yeah, no, he, would he be the class clown? Because those tend to be more important. I suppose, like, even then, we wouldn't have called anyone, like, class clown in our no, secondary school, you know? Un not until it's, like, the awards on Deb's night. I don't even go to my dev, so I don't even know. <laughs> Her truth's coming out in this um, All the yeah, trauma. So this was the seed that became this movie. This idea of how would we be around our parents when our parents were, our, were in their teenage years. Yeah. I actually found something um, today that is very interesting because I was just looking on Instagram and it was an interview with the Stranger Things kids and they were because it's set in the 80s obviously and it's very Spielberg-esque they were talking about how their parents were in say high school compared to them now and would yeah. like how, di how much they differ and it, it was just very interesting you know I'm true and also Although, in fairness, like, if you were in high school with one of the Stranger Kids things, I feel like they wouldn't, you wouldn't have the same experience as them, because, like... Well, I mean, yeah. They're, you know, they're famous celebrities. In Finn Wolfhard's case, he's a Victorian ghost that just happened to have been born and raised as a human. <laughs> he's gotten really sickly looking, and I'm scared. <laughs> he's always sickly looking. No, I, in the first season, he had some like healthy structure to his face now it's a bag of bones <laughs> no the first season he looked like he would have the gas mask from the blitz episode of the first doctor who season <laughs> oh god <laughs> but um yeah and so they wanted to do this and and zemeckis also and when gail told zemeckis that th about this experience with him finding his parents yearbook and whatnot he uh, Zemeckis was was like that's interesting, and then he kind of said, "I also kind of thought about how my mother said things about how she was back in the day, but I kind of found contradictions the more I grew up hearing yeah. it." And so they were like, "You know what? We should make this." And then that's how they started writing the script. This would have been the early eighties, like maybe nineteen eighty, eighty one ish. There was one problem though. Zemeckis had two flops right out the gate in terms of his directorial career. And this is kind of getting into the area, into areas that me and Brendan spoke about on air, Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode. Yeah. Because obviously Roger Rabbit comes directly in between Back to the Future and the Back to the Future sequels. Yes, yeah. But um, Zemeckis' first film was I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was a Beatles movie. Yeah. And then he made a comedy called Used Cars that came out in 1980. Both of them uh, flopped, and he also had a writing credit on 1941. So like, it didn't like, help. <laughs> like, but no, it was, well, he was on the poster as, like, written by Zemeckis, you know. Oh, okay. And 1941 is literally the only film Spielberg did in the entire run between... Jaws and maybe Hook mm. that was like 
not well reviewed and didn't do financially well. Like it's like it's a very it's it's the only critical and commercial flop yeah. in that early run of his. Like it was very unlikely that Zemeckis would be trusted after that, yeah. you know. You know? And so his career was on the ropes. They began writing the draft for Back to the Future first draft in late 1980, and they started to pitch it to certain studios such as Columbia. The president of Columbia at the time liked the liked Zemeckis. He he enjoyed used cars, even though it didn't do well money wise. Mm. So he was telling them, "I'll help you write. I'll help you write this. I'll tell you where to go and whatnot." Um. But then, after one or two drafts, he was like, this thing needs refinement, I'm out. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they then started passing it around to other studios. The problem was, it was a movie with a teen lead that wasn't risque enough yeah. at that point in time in the 1980s. Because and it was also had... about time travel, which... Yeah, so there was the double header of... It's a teen movie, but it's not risque, it's not Animal House, it's not Porky's, it's not Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. And around that time in the early 80s, there had been time travel movies like Time Bandits and whatnot, which were flops. Like, time travel movies at that point in time had not been making money. It was, yeah. It was a genre where... If you ask the studio exec what's making money, none of them will say time travel is because there was proof that they weren't making money. Yeah. So it was that double header. So most studios said no, time travel movies don't do well, and also it doesn't have enough boobs. It doesn't have enough sex and raunchiness. I believe then Disney actually were so thinking very, about it, but the whole. Disney had the opposite reaction. Yeah, because everyone was... was telling them, "Go to Disney, go to Disney. This feels like it could be a Disney movie." Disney told them, "Get out of here! You're coming. Here. You're coming to Disney with a movie about insects." Yeah, like the mother-son relationship. They're not gonna go for that. <laughs> so basically, they were turned down from every studio but Disney for not being risque enough, and then Disney turned them down for being too risque. So they, they just couldn't win. Yeah. I believe it was like 44 times they were turned down. Yes, they were rejected 44 times. Um, and Spielberg offered to make it with them, but Zemeckis was like, no, if I make it with you and it flops, then my career is done because I will be, oh, Rob, Robert Zemeckis, the guy who is Spielberg's friend, and that's why he gets to make movies. Yeah. He didn't want an association with Spielberg to be his only thing that can get him a movie. He wanted to... He wanted to prove himself, like... Yeah, I want to prove myself without you. Yeah. And then, you know, if I want to make it uh, with you later on, sure. But he was like, no, I need to make a hit on my own without Spielberg's name attached to it, like, the next half-decent script I get, I'm going to agree to do it. And then the script for Romancing the Stone came along. Yeah. In 1984, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito, it's a hit. Great film all around. Yeah. 
and it inspired the greatest movie trivia team name of all time. <laughs> I'm so proud of that. <laughs> that yeah, considering my proclivity for puns, it haunts me to this day that you came up with such a good pun in I a mean, team with me. <laughs> Ardy was on our team. It was right there, sitting in front of our face. Romancing the Estonian. Like, come on. <laughs> and so, Romancing the Stone was, a, was such a hit that not only was it enough to get Back to the Future greenlit, the sequel came out the same year as Back to the Future. So a year later, without Zemeckis. Yeah, geez. This was the 80s, guys. You could do a film in 1984, and the sequel could come out almost a, a year later. <laughs> Things moved fast. There's Here was no... us waiting for Space Jam 2 for how long? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, nowadays, it's like, if you pump out a sequel in two years, you're rushing it. Yeah. yeah. I mean... It's the scale of some stuff, like, you, you look at the time between Infinity War and Endgame, like, yeah. we were there, like, we forgot about Avengers for a while, we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> There's another film coming out, look, we forgot. Yeah, no, I was uh, looking at some of the old Bond films recently, and it was like, the first one was out in, like, 1962, and Connery did five official films. I'm pretty sure by 1971, more was in there. So you had gone through two Bonds before the series had gone 10 years. That's and you insane. had gotten six films. Six films in just the 60s. Now, what would you say the quality of those films are, though? Like, in your opinion, do you think they would hold up as, like, a kind of saga as well as any other that would have more time? Between them. Some are better than others. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... And let's just uh, quickly mention some abandoned ideas for the early drafts. The time machine would be fueled by Coca-Cola. Oh. Uh, the changes made in 1955 would have had dramatic changes on all of 1985. So it's not just Marty's family's rich. It's 85 in general would be a fucking utopia. Yeah, I wouldn't be run down. Um, George would have become a boxer after KOing Biff. Oh, wow. I mean, like, part of me would love to see Crispin Glover try and play a boxer. <laughs> I, I think they, they went the right way, though, with the writer aspect of it. Yeah. Um, uh, Zemeckis and Gale have both said they did struggle with writing for teenagers as men who were in their 30s at that point. <laughs> they were both 34 years old uh, because they had both been born in 1951. So they had the problem of we're writing a movie about teens currently and we're in our 30s. But we're also writing a movie about teens in the 1950s when we were four years old. Yeah, so they, they were just born at the wrong time is all. Which is essentially being like, okay, in ten years we have to write about the teens of 2035. Yeah, and God knows we wouldn't be able to. Or 2032. And then you also got to write about kids in 2002. Yeah, like when, yeah, 
you know? You're just not going to be able to, like... Yeah, so they, so they ended up taking a lot of inspiration from Frank Capra's film aesthetics, you know, uh, that kind of good old America, picket fences, mm. uh, good old days type shtick, uh, Twilight Zone, a lot of novels from the time, you know, the, the 50s, like, the 50s aesthetic that we've all become really accustomed to. Yeah. Like, very much, you know, 50s 101. Yeah. Yeah. You got your clean diners, you know. Yeah. Zemeck, um, and so obviously with the fact that Romancing the Stone was such a hit, like, it was one of the biggest hits of 1984, and shall I name to you a few of the films from 1984? Oh, I think I know a few. Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Temple of Doom. Yeah. Just that, to name a few, you know. <laughs> that's the competition. And the fact that, you know, it was holding its own. Yeah. That's a big thing, you know. That, that, that shows a lot. Right yeah. There, like. um, so this ended up being the first fi- non-Spielberg directed film ever done by Amblin. Yes. Which was his um, production company. Um. Zemeckis wanted no involvement from Columbia President Frank Price because Price was the guy who was, who was like, I'm working with you on a few drafts, but this needs refinement, so I'm out. Yeah. So yeah. he dicked him around a few years earlier, and so they're like, nope, we're nope. not doing it with him. But Spielberg was very much on board with this pettiness. <laughs> Because not only did Price say to Back to the Future, it needs refinement. A couple of years, I would say maybe a couple months after, he did, he um, he just dropped the ball with them entirely with Back to the Future. He said no to Spielberg about a movie that he was working on at the time that ended up being E.T. Yeah, this guy is not making like good decisions at all so price um so price said no rejected et so spielberg was like yeah fuck him yeah you know and i i love stories like that where it's just like pettiness over one thing that leads to another thing it's just it's an endless machine of like look at trek <laughs> yeah you know the amount of like animation studios that you can look at and just like you were born out of behind-the-scenes, like, stupidity from certain studios and, like, intrigue from others, you mm. know? It's, yeah. it's always just fascinating to me, that kind of stuff. But um, the issue was the rights had been tied up at Columbia because of Price's original uh, uh, involvement. Uh, but they were able to limit Price's influence. And Sidney Scheinberg who deserves his flowers because he was the guy who was in Spielberg's corner from Jaws. Oh, wow. So he was the guy who saw what Spielberg had in mind with Jaws and was going into meetings with his superiors and was like, I know the shark doesn't work. I know it's grossly over budget. I know it's well, it's gone on well longer than we had scheduled to go on the shoot. But this kid has something. This film, yeah. ha- this film could be big. So, so Scheinberg was always in Spielberg's corner. 
and I feel like he deserves the recognition for that because the producers don't always get the credit they deserve. Sometimes it's a wine scene and they get far too much credit. Yeah. And other things. But more often than not, like they, yeah. they just get overlooked. Because it's the guys who are going into the meeting with the suits where it's so easy to just back down and you're still going to get your paycheck. Yeah, yeah. But you fight for the creative in the areas where the creative can't fight for himself. Yeah. So I think Scheinberg deserves his flowers for like what he did because yeah, like Jaws, you don't get E.T., you don't get Indiana Jones, you don't get Jurassic Park. Like you don't even get a summer blockbuster. Yeah, like. absolutely. This guy saw the future and fought for it and you know yeah we're getting what a sixth jurassic park movie this weekend speaking of it's out now i think yeah i have to see it um but um yeah uh so scheinberg ends up taking on an executive role in this as a way to push price out mm. who would eventually leave columbia before this movie even comes out and after we've gushed praise on scheinberg yeah. Let's bring it down a little bit because he not everything he thought would be a knock out of the, a knock oh knock it out of the park idea was good. He had a very famous gap in the making of this that thankfully was not brought in. I think I know the one you're out about. Oh, he was he did not like the so he didn't like the title Back to the Future. Yeah. He didn't think it would sell well. So he wanted to change it to Spaceman from Pluto. Yeah, and I can get where he was going with it because of the whole joke of the film, but you don't... Plus also the fact that it's like, oh, it's like... Because when you're trying to pitch it in like an executive way, like how Heather used to say it to us, that you'd always think buzzwords. Just like, yeah. oh, it's, it's time travel, it's 50s sci-fi inspired... So you'd think, oh, because Spaceman from Pluto sounds like it would be a 50s sci-fi B-movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, I don't know, Owen would watch when high. <laughs> or Brennan would watch. Yeah. But, um, you know, so that, and so, but again, it's a terrible idea. It's yeah. Really, we wouldn't be here talking about it if they called it that. It wouldn't. No, like, I think there's something special about the title Back to the Future itself because it, it kind of brings an in intrigue on its own. It's like. Yeah, that should. As a sentence, that doesn't make sense. How are you going back to something that yeah. is forward? But then you watch the film and you're like, oh, yeah, it makes okay. Sense. Yeah. But um, uh, Spielberg reacted by sending a message back to him. Thank you, Sid. That was a very funny memo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, to give him his credit, he was the one who wanted to call the character Doc Brown. Yeah, instead of Professor. Yeah, well, it was meant to be Professor Brown, but he changed it to Doc. Which is, again, because Professor Brown sounds like a professor. Yeah. Whereas Doc Brown, that's iconic. Yeah. And he also, he was the one who was like, let's call her Lorraine, as opposed to... I, I, I think remember. it was Eileen. It might have been Eileen. And then or, also or, Meg. No, yes, it was going to be Meg. It was going to be Meg Baines, I'm pretty sure. Ugh. But they wanted to change it to Lorraine, 
as a tribute to Scheinberg's wife. Yeah. Who was um, Brody's wife in Jaws. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that's how him and his wife met, through Jaws. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lorraine Gary. Um, Jay Fox was always the top choice. Uh, he was a big he was a big sitcom star of the time based off of his show Family Ties. Yes, yeah. Which was essentially the setup. These two parents, they were hippies in the sixties, and now their son is an eighties Republican. <laughs> which, if you made it now, sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, Jesus Christ! I've I've never actually watched Family Ties, so I don't really know the the whole story of it. But that sounds just amazingly horrible and yeah. <laughs> I, but yeah so this was a big tv show at the time unfortunately he couldn't originally do it because of the filming of family ties yes yeah they contacted the producer of the show but at this point he was he, he was like no because fox was the biggest male star on the show and the biggest female star on the show who i, I think she was the actress who played like the mother on the show was just about to go on maternity leave. Mm. So they were like, no, we can't lose both of them. Yeah. Um, so they ended up casting an actor named Eric Stoltz. Yeah. Who Good had Eric. worked with him in a film with uh, Leah Thompson. Wait, previously, wait. where he, she, he, they'd been uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, the characters on in the movie. Mm. So that so they were looking for they were looking at Leah Thompson and they were like oh this guy yeah yeah makes sense and that is where a lot of the issues with the production of this movie stemmed from yeah almost all of them actually this is the biggest example that someone will use of a film where the casting was got wrong yeah. At the center because Stoltz very early on it became apparent this is not the guy yeah because he was a dramatic actor in a role that needed you didn't need a dramatic actor you needed the opposite yeah of it. you needed a lot more comedy than what he was providing the reason Michael J Fox is perfect in this role is because this role was drastically in need of a sitcom actor. Yes. Because on a sitcom, you're acting in front of a live audience, you're doing a lot of, I'm hearing this news and I'm reacting to it and I'm taking it in really fast and just going with it. That's yeah. how a lot of sitcom acting is done. You it's know? a lot more expressive. Yeah, expressive. You know, like, honest, like if you're a dramatic actor, you're not going to take take what is essentially so marty i've made a time machine out of a delorean and now you're stuck in the 1950s you know a dramatic actor is not going to take that the way that this film needed it yeah a sitcom actor is gonna be like all right okay what do we do yeah that's the reaction that a sitcom actor would do because you know you're firing off lines you're you're living off the reaction of a pseudo audience and that's kind of what this film is. Like, every scene, Fox, uh, Michael J. Fox is living off of the reaction that the audience is going to have to what he's saying, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then also just also just in general the fact that this is a role where he is playing both the coolest kid you will ever fucking meet yeah. and he still has fucking problems. Yeah. You know? It, it's a great balance, you know? Yeah, like he is like he is somehow both a loser and also the the coolest kid. Yeah. You know? Like this movie sets him up as oh he he's kind of a loser, he has these insecurities. His his parents are miserable. His dad is just the biggest dingus, Dorcas, all of the eighties insults for a nerd you can think of. McFly. And yes, he has this hot girlfriend. He's a really talented musician. He just looks cool. He can skateboard. Yeah. You know, so it's always that weird thing of like he's just relatable enough to be incredibly unrelatable. Yeah. To be what we want to be as opposed to what we are. I think a lot of that helped, uh, like, it was helped along by the the costumes that he had compared to Eric Stoltz yeah. as well, though. Yeah. So, uh, so it became very early on that it wasn't working. He had the wrong energy. It wasn't clicking. He was pulling a bit of a Jared Leto on set. Method you know, acting. He wanted everyone to call him Marty even when the cameras weren't rolling. Yeah. And in the scenes where he has to get physical with Biff, he yeah. is legitimately being too aggressive in his shoving of Tom Wilson to the point where Wilson almost suffered a shoulder injury. Like, he almost dislocated his shoulder from being shoved. Jesus. To the point where... Um, he wanted to get his when own they back. Were when they were set to film the scene where Biff punches Marty in the car park, Wilson was going to go shoot. Yeah. He was going to shoot and he was going to legitimately punch him out. Yeah. Like, it wasn't. he wasn't going to pull his punch in the movie way. This was just, I'm going to punch you in the face because I told you, please don't shove me that hard. You don't need to do it. And you didn't listen to me. And this is... You have this coming. Basically. Oh no, still sort of 100% deserved it. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately he was sacked before they could do that yeah. scene. So unfortunately for Wilson, he couldn't get his own back. And thankfully for Stoltz, he didn't get punched in the face for real. Yeah. Um, Stoltz was fired after six weeks after a dinner at 1am. It was announced by Semeckis to the crew. Stoltz isn't involved anymore. We'll get back to you soon about what's going to happen. Yeah. Because it was very obvious. And also, the crew said it themselves. They kind of could see it coming because when they had the 50 sets up, they were told, don't dismantle it. Which yeah. made you think, we're going to have to use these more than we, are, than we already have, right? Yeah, and they, would, and they could also sense there wasn't clicking and whatnot. And it was just... Yeah, and then certain shots they were looking at, it was like, you're also filming this in a way where you're kind of only showing the back of Eric's head. Yeah. And in a way where it's like, you could work around that shot not having his face in it, and you have worked around those shots. Yeah. So are you thinking of sacking him? And it turns out they were right. They went back to the producer of... Uh, Family Ties, uh, which are, at, at this point, they ended up finding out that the producer 
hadn't even told uh, Fox about Ugh. the movie, about them being interested, because he was so concerned with like keeping Fox on the show while the co-star was on maternity leave. Jesus, he didn't want him to be tempted by it. Yeah. And by this point in time, it's early January of 85. They are six weeks into filming and they've had to sack the, sack the main star. And the other co-star is back from maternity leave at this point. He was like, okay, I'm sorry. We, I didn't tell you about this. Do you want to do the movie? And obviously Fox said yes. Under strict conditions... He had to do the Family Ties filming in the day and then, and then the Back to the Future filming at night. So basically his schedule was he'd get up around 10 a.m., he'd go do Family Ties until 6 p.m., he would then drive to the Universal lot and film Back to the Future until 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, be driven home, sleep for a little bit, and then rinse and repeat all of that. That's an insane work ethic right there. To the there. point where he was sleeping in the car between the drive from the Family Ties studio to the Universal lot. And one or two of the drivers have openly said, there were evenings where we were driving him back home and we had to carry his sleeping body from the car up to his room. Like, we had to carry him into his own house. Oh, God. Because he was shattered. And, that's, and it's incredible that you look at that and you're like, you couldn't tell. Yeah. He had so much look, energy. He doesn't look tired. He's full of energy. He can do the action sequences fine. I think when asked as well, he actually quoted it. He's like, I'm 22. Why would I need sleep? <laughs> yeah, I think it was the right time. If he had been a couple of years older, maybe it would have hit him more. Yeah. Like, I'm 24. And, like, I had to recover. It took me two days to recover from Brennan's last house party. <laughs> like, no, I, I get that. that like, I, I am 22. And I feel like if I go without it, I'd sleep now. I, I will die. <laughs> but other names that were considered for Marty. Let's go through the list. Yeah, because there's a lot. <laughs> John Cusick. Yep. Would not have worked. C. Thomas Howell. Also would not have worked. John Cryer. From, 60, from Pretty in Pink and later Two and a Half Men fame. Who's in Two and a Half Men? Alan. Oh, he was... Okay, Jesus. That would have been weird. Speaking of Two and a Half Men, Charlie Sheen. Yeah, I heard that all right. I, although I feel like Charlie Sheen is would have been on every casting list for any major role at that point in time. Do you think he was a bit... Would he be on the kind of stilt side of like too dramatic as well? Uh, no, I think he could, I think he could have pulled off Marty at, in the way that Fox did. But no... I also don't think that. Yeah. I think he can pull off a performance. I don't think he would have. He would have known not to be dramatic about it. But I don't. I just don't think he would have worked. One person who I think would have worked, but it would not have been the same. Ralph Macchio. Yes. Yeah. I think he has that same kind of cool kid, but also could have less cool elements to him yeah and also because again he is kind of he's playing a the slightly more bullied version of Murray mcfly in the karate yeah you know so he's used to playing that role and he's used to playing off that older 
wiser adult figure but I feel like that relationship was more of a father-son thing whereas Doc and Marty is more f just pure friendship yeah. yeah also did Karate Kid come before or after 84 it was 84 so this would have been like Macho had just you know exploded as an actor wasn't Macho as well like almost 30 at this stage yes so he would have been a bit older you this know? dude does not age no he only looks he looks about he looks he still looks slightly younger than fox now yeah um johnny depp yes yeah uh matthew modine who would later go on to be in full metal jacket okay. and would also end up playing Grenner on stranger things oh okay Ben wow, Stiller. Jesus! Sorry, I just processed that in my head. Wow. <laughs> ben, ben Stiller, who you know what? I could kind of see that. I could see him playing that again. I could see him in this role, but I couldn't see him working in this role. That's the big difference, you know. And the last name is someone who, if blasphemy be had. And they remade this film now, who I think could do Doc okay in a remake now, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, I think so. Like if you, like if, again, if Blasphemy Be Had, I think could work. Um, originally the time travel method would be a ray gun and there would be a container that you get into. So you would shoot, you'd shoot it at the container, and you would go back in time. Um, this yeah. that container later would be a fridge, Ugh. and that was cut and changed. But it ended up being the seed of a certain a certain jumping the shark, uh, tied with moment in a film from two thousand eight. I think we all know the film you're talking about. It became. It was the original nuking the fridge in <laughs> Crystal Skull. Yeah, dear God. <laughs> um, the idea for the DeLorean was chosen because they were like, "Well, that's a kid. That's a car that looks like what a farm boy would think a spaceship looked yeah. like, especially in the fifties." Of course, yeah. Like it looked futuristic in the eighties. Imagine how it would have looked in the fifties. Yeah, I think the the like the open hatch kind of doors really worked yeah, well in its favor. Yeah, they were really they were they were mad into the El Goldwing doors. Um, uh, John DeLorean wrote a fan letter thanking the filmmakers um, because again, how much of this film's um, icon iconicness is kind of tied in with the car? Yeah, you know? if it looked like a normal car from the eighties, I it would still be looked at as oh, that's a great film from the eighties, but like. It's timeless. Now. Yeah. No, like, I think his, like, his specific words were like, um, thank you for making our car the car of the future or something, yeah. you know. Well, you know, he fucking didn't make it the car of the future. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he killed it. Yeah. Um, Gale and Zemeckis were legitimately offered a deal where they were told, if the time machine became a Ford Mustang rather than a DeLorean, you would find $75,000 in your wallet. And their response was, Doc Brown doesn't drive a Ford Mustang. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> um, well, the actors considered for Doc, Gene Hackman. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, well, again, it's the 80s. Gene Hackman's career is kind of at a point. You know, he has an amazing 70s, an amazing revival in the 90s, and then the 80s are just like, nah, yeah. he's there. He's kind of phoning it in at certain points, but, you know, James Woods, no. <sighs> uh, John Cleese? That would be interesting. I don't think it would have worked, but... I still kind of want to see it. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin. Do remind me. Um, I believe he was in... Oh, no, he was in Princess Bride. Inigo Montoya. Oh, wait. Is he also in Hawkeye? Is that the same dude? I, no, no, no. That's not it. No, no I, I got um, that very wrong. <laughs> Goldblum. Oh, my God. This that, is why young, is that kind of perfect? This, this is young Goldblum, though. Uh, I think he's too young. That's another one that could be good for if they ever remade it. And Robin Williams. Oh, wow. Too much. Yeah. I think it would have been too much. And the favourite was John Lithgow. That's who they kind of originally wanted. I can Lithgow. yeah, I can see Lithgow in, in this. Because producer Neil Canton had done Buckaroo Banzai, okay. which had starred both Lithgow and Lloyd and Goldblum. Oh. Yeah. The cast of Buckaroo Banzai is fucking insane. <laughs> is it a good film? It is, actually. I like it. Um, it's got Jeff Goldblum dressed up like a leather cowboy. What needs to be said? Um, enough said right there um, Lithgow was unavailable so the offer went out to Lloyd who was hesitant at first but then after a meeting with uh, Zemeckis won him over because it was like I could do this movie which I'm not entirely sold on or I could go and do this play that I'd like to do Yeah. Um, Billy Zane was cast as matches because he failed to get the role of Biff He he was found not to be intimidating enough yeah, I I think they made the right choice there. Yeah, I mean he's perfect for Titanic. Yeah. As like the jerk there, but this is a different kind of jerk. Yeah. This is like, this is like this needs to be the high school jerk, not the you know, twenty something year old jerk. Yeah, and like you know, the the presence of Wilson is just yeah. insane. This was Wilson's first film role. Really. Yes. He fucking nailed it. <laughs> Yeah, and the last name Tannen was uh, decided after a certain dickhead executive that the filmmakers had to deal with. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, Claudia Wells was cast after the original actress was fired because she had been cast when Stoltz was in the role. Mm. And then after Stoltz got fired, they were like, oh, shit, we have a problem. Marty McFly's girlfriend is taller than Marty McFly. Yeah. And it's the 80s. You can't have that. You can't have that in the 1980s where the love interest is taller than the, than the guy. You know? Yeah. So she ended up being... So the original actress was fired because she was taller than Michael J. Fox. But it was okay. So sad. Because that actress was Melora Hardin and she later on to be in the US version of The Office. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. There's a certain person out there listening who knows exactly who Melora Harding is. That one's for you, babes. <laughs> Glover was allegedly extremely weird on set. Who would have thought it? Yeah. Um, they had to ADR a lot of his lines later on in the film because he did. He just 
he he killed his vocal cords. He, I, wasn't it because of nerves? Nerves. His vo- but basically by the end of it, he had just weirded himself into like not being able to speak, so they had to ADR his lines. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, Zemeckis had to tell him to tone it down a lot. Uh, Zemeckis was not a fan. I think it's the Loki. It's Loki, one of the weirdest performances you will see of any mainstream movie in that time period. It like looking back, though, it works so well. As like, there was there was there was a couple things with that character that they were they ended up cutting. One was there was meant to be a scene in between like uh first introducing him and marty leaving for the for the the car park at the mall which would have been him being like conned by a girl scout into buying cookies because he's <laughs> such a pushover oh god and they was like that's not needed yeah no. yeah huey lewis agreed to cameo if he could be uncredited and in disguise yeah. He wasn't this guy. He was just dressed up as a straight neck, as a straight laced person. I I do love the cameo though. It's so good. Yeah. He all he was also kind of like iffy on doing a song for because he was like, I don't want to do a song called Back to the Future, and they were like, No, no, it doesn't have to be called that. It can be called anything you want. And so and it ended we got being Back in Time, and he also was, and he also claimed oh, one of the first things he just wrote out when thinking about songs for the movie was um. The power of love. Yeah. And depending on who you ask, they're like, that was it. And if you ask anyone who's not Huey Lewis, they're like, I kind of think that's bullshit, to be honest. <laughs> that's not a song you just, like, randomly write. Yeah. No. Um, uh, the principal photography began in November, November 26, 1984, with Stoltz on board. It was meant to be 14 weeks. With a $14 million budget finishing up in late February. Um, it was filmed mostly at the Universal Lot. On, but various California locations like our letter was used for Lions Estate and whatnot. By December 30th, they knew it wasn't working with Stoltz. Spielberg was adamant, before you sack Stoltz, you need his replacement. Because even in my own studio, even with my own production company... I'll still be in shit with the main people up yeah. at uh, Universal if I'm helping to make a movie where they've sacked a, the main star and don't have a, have a replacement. This isn't football. You can't have the caretaker manager yeah. lead the film. Yeah, um, it's completely fair. It's Spielberg's part, like. Yeah, yeah. As, I, as we were saying, footage of Stoltz in the role with key scenes te- still exist, apparently, including... Marty's arriving in 1985, Marty returning to 1985, and a DeLorean breakdown scene. So, like, a lot of, like, the finale was tech- was allegedly filmed with Stoltz. Oh, wow. And, like, you know, there's photos of him in the di- 50s diner at the start of, like, the 50s section of the film with him in the role. Mm. Like, there's photos of it, and they claim that the footage still exists. They'll release it someday, apparently. I believe um, Wilson actually said the the scene where um, Marty punches Biff, the, where it's just the fist, apparently that's Stoltz. Yeah, they claim Stoltz's fist is still in the movie. Yeah. Um, so they ended up losing 34 filming days 
with stall because of the stall issue, and between three and a half and four million between costs incurred from scenes that they can no longer use, mm. and also Stoltz's salary. Yeah. And then also having to deal with bad press, because any film uh, where that would happen would have people in, in like, the papers and, you know, the Hollywood circles being like, oh, I don't know about that, yeah. that's a bad sign. So I was kind of looking to tear shit down in that sense. To be um, fair, though, you would think that's a bad sign. Yeah. January 15th is where, is when Fox's first day happened. There's five days between Stoltz being sacked and Fox taking over. Jeez. Filming ended up concluding on April 26th, 1985. 107 days rather than 98 days uh, when they started filming with Stoltz. So, like... That's almost a full month. Yeah. You know? uh, with a summer release date still out, post-production began immediately. There was a rough cut ready by late May um, for a test screening in San Jose that is fucking legendary. Yeah. There's legends about it because there was the first time an audience was watching Back to the Future and everyone's like, they were liking the film okay at the start. They kind of weren't sure where it was going to go. The scene when Einstein travels in time for the first time, the cinema in question was fucking tense as hell because they didn't know what was happening. They just saw, did something bad just happen to the dog? Is this a dog killing movie? <laughs> so it was all on a knife edge. Like, hang on a minute, what the fuck is this? We don't like this if something bad happened to the dog. Because again, you don't get told what the film is. You know, you just, they go into this film Robert Zemeckis directed, oh, Spielberg producing, oh, shit. Yeah. Because by in 1985, if you see Spielberg's name on something, nine times out of ten, you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Because Indiana Jones and E.T. and Jaws. Yeah. You know? Um, it's, like, it's like with Cinephiles, if they see the fucking A24 logo, ooh. Yeah. Um, and when... Doc utters a line, Einstein has just become the world's first time traveller. The cinema erupts and everyone finally realises, oh shit, I know what this is. Yeah. This is awesome. And everyone has said since, it's one of the best received press screenings any film's had. But wouldn't you just love to go into this film not knowing at all what it's about yeah i just reacted like that that's just amazing i know it tested so well with audiences that they pushed the release forward to a, a month it was yeah. not originally meant to come out on july 3rd it was meant to be i imagine early august around your birthday I'd yeah say. um so that only gave them nine weeks for the special effects that turnaround is fucking ridiculous i know they almost cut the johnny b good scene Oh my god, no. <laughs> Scenes that ended up, ended up being cut. 1985, George being coerced into Girl Scout cookies. A longer version of Darth Vader Marty. And a scene where George got locked in a phone booth at the dance. Oh. Which, I, I don't know, part of me would love to have seen Crispin Glover get caught acting, oh, I'm caught in a box. In that <laughs> performance, but I'm like, I understand, you know. It's already almost bordering on weird 
how they have oh he's punched out Biff and then just this random kid comes in yeah like you're almost pushing him it's like you don't need that yeah no I think they, they got the perfect balance yeah. it ended up being this. it was the second collaboration between Zemeckis and composer Alan Silvestri after Romancing the Stone Silvestri has worked on every Zemeckis film since that so, is Romancing the Stone to modern day every Zemeckis film Silvestri's had a hand in that's commitment right there. Yeah. Um, where was it? Power of Love was charting at number one just as the film came out. So, <laughs> incredible timing. By June of 1985, the industry was seeing a 14% decline in tickets, ticket sales for summer movies compared to the 1984 summer season. So despite the fact there was a 25% increase in the number of films coming out that summer. You know, 1985 summer, you'd have Rambo 2, Goonies, Fletch, yeah. A View to a Kill. God, the so, 80s yeah, so were this awesome. film was coming out at a time when Hollywood was seeing a dip in people going to the movies for the summer blockbusters compared mm. to 1984, which is often regarded as one of the best years for, like, all-around summer movie blockbuster season. It's one of the best-selling seasons they ever had. So it was a lull, and then this film came out. So you can really much say this film came out at the best possible moment. Yeah. Yeah. And folks, with this being the 50th episode spectacular, um, we're not doing the box office game because we're going to be back in 1985 at some point. So we'll do it then. But for now... See, this episode was originally planned to be a bit different. There was going to be more than one guest, as you can tell by the fact that I began with a whopping one guest. But um, we're adults, allegedly, and we have schedules and work and lives, and sometimes the stars don't align, and we cannot all gather at Brennan's house with drinks and a projector. Yeah, unfortunately. that's episode 100, <laughs> tapping the nose. Um, so, but we did want input from different uh, individuals, different past guests and fans. So um, while we're here, uh, well, let's read out a few so that, uh, so that you know, we can have previous friends and helpers of the podcast to feel included when they would absolutely have been included because we wanted to get as many people on as possible. Yeah. So, um, Dean has a message from Alfie that um, Which we're going to read name? out. This one? That's okay. the one. This is coming from Alfie. Right. Um, can't believe it's 50 already. Looking forward to my next appearance on the show, XX. That's from our good, our dear friend, Alfie. Yes. Famous from her appearances on the Lost Boys episodes, lep episode, and the Fast and Furious episode. Whoop whoop. Whoop. Give me some of that Lost Boys. <laughs> Don't know why I said that. <laughs> um. And here we go. Here's a message from our correspondent. Um. Congratulations on the 50th episode. I can't wait to see what the next season has to offer. And I can't wait to discuss some great spooky films with you on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I was 
so tempted to do the Owen voice. <laughs> so close. Good, yeah, good. I like the restraint, though. Uh, and then we have a message from another very frequent guest of the show. Our... We don't have a title for him yet, but um, he's our favourite slice of bread. <laughs> it's sliced host himself, Brennan. He's sent in a message, too. 50! That's a straight-up lie, Jake. <laughs> I know for a fact you haven't recorded more than, like, nine episodes. I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but let's not lie to the people. <laughs> See you on the next one. Be better. <laughs> he was negging me there. Why was we, that kind of good? <laughs> we love you. We love you, Brennan. Someone had to have an. Someone had to have a voice impression done. Okay, oh, and um, a very very special. She hasn't been on the show yet, but she will. Oh yeah. A f- an international voice coming here. All right. So. I might say that I'm the biggest fan of this podcast because it is not just a podcast, but also a starting point of a new relationship. It helped me to sleep while I was living with seven strangers and made me learn so many, so many fun facts about my favorite movies. I love all the guests on the show and their unique perspective, but I think I am in love with the host. Blake. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was from... I will have to say... So, sorry to everyone else out there, but who I think is the most beautiful uh, listener on the show. Well, I'm deeply was... offended, Jake. How dare you? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, that was my um, beautiful girlfriend, Ishik. My girlfriend, the genius. <laughs> um, um, thank you, baby, for uh, your message. It's um, a really nice message. <laughs> yes, yes. I told you I'd make Dean read it out. <laughs> did she want me to read it out <laughs> no no i was just saying i told you i would um she will definitely be on the show at some point in the future yeah, um okay. and while you're here what message do you have for all our many listeners as the person with pr- pretty much the most appearances on the show at this point well every episode i've been on i have been like i've just been getting more and more excited you know it's it's been so much fun to like, like you've been on board since Hot Fuzz. Yeah, you've done Hot Fuzz. The nerves I felt. Shrek. Oh my god. Um, all eight Harry Potter films. <laughs> yeah. Space Jam. Space Jam. Michael Collins. Yeah, Jesus Christ! I've done a few. <laughs> this, I, this might be like your thirteenth. Listen, I um, I'm glad to be here, and yeah. I I really appreciate that you've let me do this many. Like like it's between you and Thomas. Yeah, we're we're neck and neck right now, you know. Yes, Thomas will add a message in post, and if not, um, oops. Hello, and this is Thomas, the editor slash producer, and uh, yeah, haha, Jake, I did make a audio edit and recording. First of all, I'd like to say thank you all for listening. Um, makes Jake happy, and I have a lot of fun being on this podcast and editing it. Secondly, that. Um, I'd like to apologize for the gap in the release of the episodes as uh, my audio editing software caused me some issues, but it's all fixed and hopefully these episodes are coming out more frequently. And tertiary, I just, thanks for listening. Um, means a lot to Jake, myself, Dean, and all the other guests who come on. And um, I hope you enjoy and enjoy the rest of your 2022. <laughs> um, and just a heads up, folks, 
we will be coming to you with episode 51 soon. Uh, once this will be after this episode goes up, potentially. We'll see when people get back to me. But episode 51 will be kind of like all the other episodes. But with episode 52, we're going to be starting a new direction for the show. Mm-hmm. We shall be doing seasons and series depending on what word you want to use to describe them that will have different themes will or have specific you know it will be it will it will they'll have themes you know we may have one where we look at just a certain genre or a certain ip a certain cartoon series maybe or a certain actor or a certain combining thread through or studio or something silly that ties different films together that's kind of more like the thread but um best believe they will all have a pun in them oh you fucking know it yeah (laughs) excuse my language um but yes so that is what the future of the podcast holds we haven't so much found a hook as we have opened a shop for fishing rods and bait. <laughs> um, and thank you all so, so much for listening. It warms the cockles of my heart to know that um, we have such a vast listenership across many different countries and continents. You'd love to see it. And counties. <laughs> Shout out to all of those fans. Yes. Uh, we love you. We will continue to produce so-so quality podcasts (laughs) until at some point we stumble back ass over heel into quality. Yeah. Um, And until then, thank you all very much for watching. I have enjoyed doing all of these 50 episodes and let's all be here when we reach 100. Roll out another 50. Yes. So from myself, from Dean... From the producer who is not here but is always in our hearts, Ansleyo, Thomas, Mr. Milani. Mr. Milani. Um, thank you all for listening. Enough roads to get up to eighty-eight. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads.